Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Felicity Nelson. Today I'm joined by my co-host of the show, Francine Crimmins. Hi there. And we're inviting a special guest back to the show, Bianca Nogrady. Bianca is a science and medical freelancer who's been working full-time on our live COVID-19 blog. Welcome to the show, Bianca. Thanks very much, Felicity. Great to be here. Bianca, it's been quite the week uh, since we last spoke to you. And we've had, you know, some preprints showing some not-so-promising results, particularly for corticosteroid use as a treatment for COVID-19. But more importantly, how could we forget the disinfectant gate from last Friday, which basically left our entire team at TMR and the rest of the world just open-mouthed at that press conference with Donald Trump. I mean, that what, the words fail me in trying to comprehend and talk about the stuff that comes out of uh, Donald Trump's mouth at the best of times, but even this set the bar <laughs> so low that it, it just it completely baked my brain. And um, it's kind of been, it, it would be funny if it wasn't for the fact that people are in fact taking his advice that there have been um, apparently reports of people drinking disinfectant. There have been spikes in, um, for example, Google searches about disinfectant or drinking disinfectant. So this is having real world effects. And um, of course, the Donald is blithely ignorant of the fact that people do actually uh, for reasons best known to them, uh, take his advice at face value. But, I mean, there has been some humour value because, you know, it's admittedly it's gallows humour, but we take what we can get at this point in time. Um, and so, for example, there's been a number of quite funny videos and TikTok um, videos of people uh, kind of lip-syncing along to the Trump press conference um, whilst pretending to be extremely drunk in the club at 3 a.m., and because really, it's exactly the kind of conversation that you have when you're drunk in a club at 3am, you know, usually either conversing with the barman or the bouncer or um, somebody else who's equally drunk. And you're both trying to explain these concepts to each other. And it just kind of degenerates into this, well, what about if you could like, get the light inside? Yeah. Anyway, so there's, you know, it's, it's offered multiple moments of levity. But that's kind of overshadowed by the fact that it's just the most profoundly stupid thing to come out of Donald Trump's mouth so far, which is quite, you know, given the, the field, quite impressive achievement. I just wonder if this is going to affect the American election. Are people going to finally realise, uh, you know, what's going on? <laughs> oh, we live in hope. <laughs> I mean, I just... I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what how that will all play out. There are far smarter and more um, politically literate minds than mine that I imagine are analysing that particular question. But, uh, I mean, you know, people who presumably think that Donald Trump's advice is sound presumably also therefore vote for him. So the damage that's being done would have to be to the people who are going to re-elect him. So he's diminishing his support base, I would imagine, just by dint of the fact that people that take this advice either die, which would be horrendous, or realise how appalling that advice is and therefore don't vote for him again. But never underestimate the ability of people to kind of just wipe that out of their minds and still continue to vote for somebody so profoundly stupid. Um, and I saw also there was this thing about uh, people doing Google searches for disinfectant. Yeah, I think there's been a, I haven't seen the data, but I do see that float past that people are doing Google searches for disinfectant. I mean, I think the best response to this has actually come from, you know, of course, from New Zealand, where their um, chief medical officer was asked that in a press conference 
a couple of days ago and he kind of just blanked it for a moment, just this look of total shock on his face. And, um, and you know, Jacinda Ardern was, was a little bit more diplomatic and suggested, and said there's obviously no suggestion that this is a, a cure, but I think he then came out with something a little bit more obvious, which was, you know, to basically say this is the most ridiculous suggestion and don't do it. Um, and there's also been a, um, a mock-up of the front page of the New England Journal of Medicine, which has been floating around. So some some clever chook with Photoshop has um, basically mocked up, a, you know, a New England Journal paper about studying the effects of drinking disinfectant on COVID-19 infection. And it's a very short paper. It's one page and the, uh, the conclusion is just don't do it because it'll kill you. Um, but what's great is that the names of the doctors on this particular paper are people like Trapper John, if anyone's a fan of MASH, they'll recognise that one. Um, Catherine Gray, if anyone's a fan of Gray's Anatomy, they'll recognise that one. And I think the other three names, two of them are TV, uh, TV medics and one of them's a rapper. <laughs> so, um, yes, there's many, like I said, many great jokes and memes that will come out of this, which would be funnier if it, were, if it just wasn't so horrifically awful that this is uh, coming from, you know, the president's mouth. Um, and we also saw the uh, U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency come out with a, what was it, a coronavirus rumor control page? Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> if you want to control rumors, start from the top and stop Donald Trump giving press conferences. But yes, I thought this was quite funny, um, and you, I do have to applaud uh, FEMA's um, poker face on this particular page. So they do have a dedicated coronavirus rumor control page that's exactly what it's titled as and it addresses a whole range of rumors so things like is 5g cell phone technology linked to the cause of coronavirus answer no uh is fema seizing medical supplies which obviously is a big concern in the us uh, answer is also no well i believe that might be the fbi from one report that i read um are there vaccines or medicines for covid19 also no is the government sending everyone money can't answer that one. Um, but the funny thing is so many of these rumours have probably started from Donald Trump, like the medicines to treat COVID-19, like, uh, well, he hasn't talked about 5G, but give it time. Um, it just, yeah, I, and, and interestingly, a noticeable absence from this list, at least yesterday, was addressing the rumour, if I inject disinfectant into my lungs, will this cure me of COVID-19? I haven't addressed that particular rumour yet. And I don't know if that's just because they're kind of hiding and hoping that they don't have to, um, because that would um, presumably bring them into direct conflict with whoever it is that signs their paychecks. But yeah, I feel sorry for the poll buggers. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But, you, you know, it's when you've got a president of a country sort of talking about these um, conspiracies and um, spreading of misinformation, um, you know, these kinds of actions are sadly necessary <laughs> setting up a rumor control page um and we've also got this issue of not just um you know random people on the internet spreading misinformation but there's also um a lot of research coming out that's oh, not the highest quality um you would describe it possibly as dodgy um and i know francine has just written a whole feature on this topic um francine did you want to give give us a bit of, of um insight into that yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting because in medical publishing, it's one of the last uh, parts of science as really taking a hold of preprints. So, you know, 
science that hasn't undergone peer review has been quite common in mathematics, in physics, uh, and it's very common that you just post a paper on Twitter and get the feedback of your colleagues. Uh, But since, you know, this pandemic, they've really upped the ante on how many uh, biomedical papers are being published, which is, you know, fantastic because we really need this fast sharing of information. But what it also leads to is unfortunately quite uh, suspect papers getting past peer review or being not peer reviewed at all until they reach the internet in quite large audiences. I think, you know, one of the biggest is the fact that President Trump and Fox News were, you know, touting um, hydroxychloroquine for as long as they did based on that French study in hardly any patients. And the trend that seems to happen is in all of these studies is that One very small study will come out showing a promising effect of a drug in a COVID-19 patient cohort. And then in the following weeks, a much larger study will come out, which doesn't just show uh, that it has no benefit in treating COVID-19, but it actually causes far more harms. So we're stuck in this real publishing cycle at the moment. It has both uh, benefits and obvious Uh, downsides, but I guess that's the infodemic that we're living in. It's interesting because what we're seeing is a real kind of emergence of popularity for science right now. Everyone seems to care a lot more about science when there's a pandemic happening and everyone is craving expert analysis. Um, but at the same time, is that appetite is there. Finally, what we're seeing is is a you know variability in quality that um, is coming out of some of the top journals. Um, in medical publishing. Do, do you think, Francine, and, and did you talk to anyone about this topic, um, do you think that this is going to damage our trust in science? I think one interesting thing to point out is that that's uh, people's often uh, first perception is we're seeing a lot of uh, suspect papers coming out of some of the biggest journals and, you know, what will this mean for our trust in the future? But I actually spoke to a few researchers who actually pointed out that it's actually the biggest journals that have the most retractions every year and that the process of traditional peer review isn't perfect and really it can be quite a biased process because what it really means is you have editors and not all journal editors are fantastic and then they choose to have it peer-reviewed by the researchers really that they choose to review the paper and maybe not all of them are fantastic so it's kind of a myth to think that we don't also get terrible papers out of peer review. I think, though, what this is showing at the moment is just because of the pace and the volume of science that is being published at the moment, the volume of terrible science, if you call it that, uh, is greater. So we're having to sift through a lot more terrible science to find kind of the diamond in the rough. Uh, And Bianca, um, you've been posting a few updates on the blog about uh, some research that's, you know, interesting and and worthy of note. Do you want to take us through just quickly a few of those um, projects and research that that are coming out? Yeah, of course. Um, It was interesting just what what, um, Frankie was saying there, there, because there was a study that I think came out in JAMA and it was a big study from New York. It was one of the sort of first um, study looking at bigger numbers of patients in the ICU and it was weird, though, because they initially, the paper said we're, you know, looking at 570 patients, I think it was, but then they actually only did the analysis on kind of disease course and outcomes in a much smaller subset of that, which was the patients who um, 
had basically either died or been discharged by the follow-up, the median follow-up, which was less than five. The median follow-up was about five days. So there was still more than half of the patients who were still on ventilators at that follow-up point who they didn't include in the analysis. And, and so their initial analysis suggested that the, um, the mortality rate was like 88%. Uh, if you were um, admitted to ICU and if you were on a ventilator, which is incredibly high. And so, and then we we did actually report that, so a little mea culpa, but um, then it was pointed out on Twitter. Thank God for Twitter at the moment, I have to say. Science Twitter is really nailing it, um, mostly. And uh, yeah, and then it was pointed out, well, hang on, you still had a whole lot of patients still on ventilators at that point. Um, some of whom may have lived, some of whom may have died, but it could have skewed your results from anywhere to 27% mortality to 97% mortality. So it, you know, I, I think even in these sort of major journals, they're throwing these papers up so fast that you know there's there's just not the usual kind of checks and balances that are going into it where people are reading it and going, well, hang on, that figure doesn't make sense. How did you come to that? And and so that job is, in a way, being left up to, you know, to journalists and to to scientists who are commenting on these things after they've been published. Um, and, you know, journalists, we do our best, but we're not, you know, trained public health physicians or epidemiologists or virologists. And so it's, um, you know, it's we miss a lot of stuff. So it's it's interesting. But I must admit, I think Twitter's been fantastic in terms of the kind of post-publication commentary on a lot of these pieces. Yeah, and it's interesting for us because we don't normally do a live blog. What we would normally do is read the whole paper, get, you know, two to three people to comment on it uh, and rip it apart and really analyse it and then, you know, write sort of a 600-word story for a print magazine. But you're sort of in this really hard job where, where you just kind of have to read something, make a quick call about whether it's it's interesting enough um, to put on the blog. Are you finding that hard, Bianca? Well, I think I'm steering clear of anything where it's... Um kind of randomised controlled trials, which happily there are very few of at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm trying to look at more of the sort of the observational retrospective stuff, which normally isn't so exciting because there are so many uncontrolled variables in those kind of studies. You know, you don't know, you don't have information on what those patients' comorbidities were. You don't have information on, you know, the kind of healthcare they were they were given. Um, but it's it's really, to my mind at this stage, we're still just looking for trends. We're still just looking for hints about what might make the difference between somebody having a severe disease or mild disease or somebody, um, you know, being intubated or not being intubated or somebody dying or living. You know, it feels like we're, we're still just kind of at that early stage of trying to understand who does this disease affect worse? Um, because if we can understand that, we know who to focus our attention on in terms of interventions. Um, but, you know, it's, it is interesting. I, and I guess I try and kind of qualify you know, if it's a small study, we I, well, I should always talk about patient numbers, but, you know, like there was a convalescent plasma one, which I'm just about to write up, which is only five patients. And, you know, normally that sort of study wouldn't get a look in, but because it's, you know, we're at that stage where we're just looking for clues and it may be that that study in five patients um, has enough, shows enough of a suggestion of effect that that would then prompt, you know, a larger study. So we're at that Everything's a pilot study, I think, at this stage is what I'm trying to say. It's either pilot study or it's very uncontrolled observational cohort studies, mostly retrospective. But, you know, it's telling us some interesting things. So, for example, um, a couple of the ones that looked, leapt out at me this week. So there was another study of uh, 217 critically ill patients who were admitted to intensive care in the US in three different hospitals. Um, and so that found an overall mortality rate of around 25 
percent. Um, so they had about three quarters of the participants uh, were uh, were intubated. Um, nearly, um, I think, about sixteen percent people were still in the ICU at the end of the study. But it didn't. I didn't. Um, or median stay in the ICU was about twelve days. But what was interesting about this, and this is starting to emerge from a number of different studies, is the um, D-dimer values, which is um, a marker of coagulation. And I know that there's now a lot of interest in clotting and in um, what's happening with the blood in patients with severe COVID-19 and it's, you know, suggestions of strokes and all of these other effects. And so this particular study actually did find that um, patients who... Um, Generally, the patients with severe disease had higher D-dimer levels when they were admitted, but not only were they higher, they increased um, over the course of their disease and that higher levels and increasing levels of D-dimer were associated with mortality. And again, we don't know, is this related? Is this an effect of COVID-19? Is this um, a pre-existing comorbidity? We're not really sure quite how this is interacting but it's it's certainly a signal, you know. Everything at the moment is really looking for um, for signals. Yeah. So there's heaps of interesting research coming out. Um, and just to circle back, I really want to know, and I probably should just read the live blog this afternoon. But what what did that covalent plasma study find out? Um, okay. So the convalescent plasma ones, there. So these are in patients who are in really bad shape. So they've got acute respiratory distress syndrome um, and they're giving them, I think it's a one-shot um, uh, transfusion of plasma. Uh, so convalescent plasma is plasma from somebody who has recovered from COVID-19 infection um, and the idea is, well, the hope is that by um, giving them these, inject these transfusions of plasma, you are kind of giving them a massive hit of, COVID, um, of antibodies which will boost their um, own immune system's ability to fight off the infection or at least to get on top of the infection. Um, and it does suggest that um, these neutralising antibodies in this convalescent plasma does seem to be associated with an improvement in clinical status. But again, these studies, they're really small. We're talking about five patients. It's not a controlled study. So there's no comparison group who don't get the convalescent plasma. We don't know whether those patients would have recovered without the transfusion. Um, but you know, you know, the these ones, five of them had been just discharged from hospital, um, and two of them were in a stable condition at 37 days after transfusion, which is again a long time, and it may be that that's actually the normal course of disease in these patients. So this is where it's problematic. But the you know the immunology sort of side of things, um, it's, I was just listening to a talk from uh, immunologists earlier today, and. Yeah, this is really the kind of the, one of the really, um, I guess, hot coalface. Oh, that's probably mixing my metaphors there, but uh, the areas of great interest is trying to understand how this, um, how we respond immunologically to infection with SARS-CoV-2, because if we can understand that, that's going to lay the foundation for developing um, treatments and, and most importantly, developing a vaccine. So yeah, early days, early days, but you know, at this point, it's it's a little bit like clutching at straws, except hopefully some of those straws turn out to be uh, life rafts. Yeah, it's funny because to do science properly, you need patience. And I think right now no one has that. Um, you know, the journals are rushing through with papers and scientists are rushing through getting papers out and research out. Um, 
and you know something like that that study you just were talking about the covalescent plasma one that's super interesting but you know it doesn't really tell us anything no. <laughs> you know like, I mean could be they didn't die <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's you know in terms of the, like, that we're still alive <laughs> yeah um, and the, the last one we were going to ask you about, Bianca, is this one on wastewater analysis from Spain? Yeah, so we actually heard about wastewater analysis, I think it was probably about three weeks ago. Time is a bit kind of dilated and distorted at the moment. I think it was three weeks ago. So I think um, there were some researchers, Australian researchers, who had shown that it was possible to detect um, uh, viral RNA in untreated wastewater Uh, and the reason that this is exciting is because it would offer a way of doing kind of relatively easy community surveillance um, and and early detection because instead of having to test a thousand people in a community you can do a test in um, you know the untreated wastewater from that community if you find viral RNA you know then you move to the next level of actually doing more of a kind of um, community screening or testing approach and um so this particular study actually comes from Valencia in Spain and they collected, so they've, they've kind of always collecting wastewater samples anyway and these ones were stored, they were stored at I think about four degrees Celsius, which is enough to, is clearly enough to preserve um, whatever viral RNA was in these samples. So they had samples going back to the 12th of February from three different treatment plants and the first um, reported case, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in the area was on February 24. So they didn't find any evidence of viral RNA in February 12th. But the first evidence of viral RNA was actually the same day as the confirmed, uh, the first confirmed COVID case in the region. But the fact that the, at the, that time there was literally supposed to be only one case and yet they were finding viral RNA in the waste, um, untreated wastewater from a fairly large area, which suggests that community transmission of the of the infection was already happening at that very early stage when they literally just diagnosed the first case, um, and they found that they could they from then on they could see very clearly the um, viral RNA was present. Um, in these wastewater um, samples right the way through. And um, there was, they, they also found that the amount of RNA increased over time, which you imagine it would do if you have an increasing number of patients. Um, and we also know that it is excreted um, in our feces. I don't know about urine testing. I'm guessing no, but I'm not sure. Um, but we know it is excreted. So it's it does offer their way to detect it. But what was interesting is they also noted that the levels of viral RNA actually plateaued faster than the actual declared cases in the region. So it's 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 almost like this is a, an earlier signal of what's happening in kind of communities and individuals. Um, and the other positive thing to come out of this was they, because they were testing untreated wastewater, but then they also tested treated wastewater, which is what gets discharged out to sea or used for irrigation. And thankfully, they found no evidence of viral RNA in the nine samples of treated wastewater. So this confirms that, at least in Valencia, their wastewater treatment procedures are enough to clear the virus. But it does raise the possibility that if if this virus is present in um, untreated wastewater in parts of the world where we have, I guess, um, less rigorous treatment of wastewater, there's a possibility that we might get kind of, you know, waterborne transmission. But I don't think anyone's looked at that yet I haven't seen anything um, float past on that particular issue but you know it could be that going forward as as you know kind of 
number of cases decline, that maybe we just have an ongoing wastewater monitoring and that could be a way to, to look for early signs that, um, that the infection might be kind of returning in particular areas. Wow, that's interesting. And is it, um, so the uh, RNA in the wastewater, um, does that go up uh, relative to how many people are infected in the population or is it more sort of a binary there's either RNA or there's not. No, they did find increasing levels, so it does suggest that it's it's connected. So the more the more cases you have in a community, the greater the volume, of, which would make sense. Uh, with the, you know, the greater the I guess the the kind of copies of RNA or the, the amount of viral RNA found in in wastewater. So you know, if you had a community where there were no cases reported, but then you tested the wastewater and it's like, wow, there's a ton of viral RNA here. Um, that would suggest you've got a spot, a hotspot that's about to um, to kind of go nuclear. So, yeah, I think there's, this will probably become another tool in the arsenal of ongoing um, surveillance as, you know, we try and keep a lid on this. And aren't we uh, doing that in Australia? I thought I saw something. Yeah, so Australian scientists, I think, have actually, were the first to show that you could detect viral RNA in wastewater Um I believe that was in Queensland, but I'm not. It might have been QIMR researchers. I'm not entirely sure, but it, we, we definitely reported on it a few weeks ago. So yeah, it, it, that was the first time that it was shown you could find it in wastewater. Whether we're, that that um, surveillance is ongoing, I don't know, but I imagine there would be people looking into that because it, it's, I guess, a relatively easy way to to pick up when uh, you know the virus is kind of resurging. Yeah, it would definitely be interesting as well to see uh, this model in Australia because I know that Spain definitely didn't have the level of uh, testing that we had quite early on. You know, obvious differences there in how we tested for COVID-19 in the general population. So whether or not the wastewater would help us in our continued surveillance um, would be a rather interesting parallel and comparison to be able to do. Thank you so much for this uh, very interesting COVID-19 update, Bianca. I know that you're flat out always updating the blog. And where can people reach you if they have any tips or things that they want to chat about? Yeah, so just drop me an email to bianca at biancanograde.com. Email is usually at the top of the blog during the day. So yeah, if there's anything that you want us to cover or take a look at, or even if you just want to tell us that we're wonderful or tell us that we're not... (laughs) Any and all things are welcome. For all our listeners, if you'd like to subscribe, you can find us on Spotify or iTunes or any podcatcher of your choice. Just um, type the Medical Republic into the search bar. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're going to try and do this quite regularly. So if if you want to hear from Bianca, come back to the podcast next week and the week after. Just to end on a lighter note, for everyone who has downloaded the government's uh, COVID-19 contact tracing app, I saw someone on Twitter very cleverly write that um, he accidentally swiped right and now he's going on a date with Peter Dutton. So uh, watch out for that one, guys. Oh, I'm using his direct for me, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs>